0: Play, right. So we're doing everything different while they're gone. Right. And it's summertime. So why not try something different? You know, normally we'd be kind of diving into a season of worship right now. And um, instead, we're just going to dive right into a teaching. And if you were here last week, you heard that, you know, things are we're trying things a little different for these three weeks, I'm kind of leading through a series of a teaching. It's much more of a teaching than it is me preaching a sermon. OK. And uh, but the intention is to pass along some things for you for growth. It's very much a discipleship lesson. Um, so, let me just kind of recap a little bit of where we were last week, Brandon. If I can have just a little bit more, because I'm going to lose my voice if I can't hear myself. Um, last week, what we were looking at is we were talking about recognizing that God speaks. We look at there are five clear ways that God speaks. You know that we see in the Bible. He speaks through the Bible and through other people. He speaks through circumstances. Speaks to the person. You know individually and he speaks through dreams and visions. And the reality is is that God speaks because everything that He's about in connection with us, His creation, is to be with us. That was the plan in the garden before the fall was that He could be with man. And we recognize in what we unpacked last week is that because God loves us and He wants a relationship with us, we recognize that communication is the foundation to healthy relationships. So God still speaks. And we looked at one way that God speaks, and that is specifically how he speaks to us personally. He speaks through his word. But as as we look at 1 Corinthians 2, we see that, you know, Scripture teaches us that who knows the mind of a man except the spirit of the man and who knows the mind of God except the spirit of God. But we have the spirit of Christ. And that Jesus, we've talked about this relationship, that Jesus lives in this dependent relationship with the Father and says, I simply do what I see the Father doing and say, well, see the, what, say what I hear the Father saying. And he says of the Holy Spirit who's coming, He has there are more things that I have to reveal to you, but my spirit of truth, and who's a counselor, he's going to reveal these things to you because there is more that he wants to say to us. So how does he speak? We know we see that he spoke to Moses in a burning bush. And I think a lot of times in church when we hear about God speaking, we get kind of scared and we're like, you know, well, I've never heard an audible voice. Well, the reality is, again, back to that 1 Corinthians 2, that God speaks in thoughts. Who knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God? And so the spirit of God can speak into our thoughts as he lives within us. And so have you ever had an opportunity to feel like, man, I just feel led to or I just find myself saying something to somebody today and i thought back I'm like, i've never said i never thought that before and yet i found myself saying it there's a good chance it specifically if it aligned itself with the truth of scripture that that was a spirit of god speaking those thoughts in your head so i gave you homework to go out and try to write a letter i gave you three questions to write and just read this question just start writing thoughts that come to your head i'm not going to ask you for a show of hands of who did it and who didn't but shame on you if you didn't right The plan, the purpose is to invite you to begin dialoguing and engaging the spirit of God who lives inside of you. If you are a Christian and who longs to have a deeper relationship with you and engage with you as you engage with him. And that happens not just by speaking to him in prayer. But by learning how to listen and discern his thoughts from your thoughts, So that's where we are. Now we're going to transition into this week as we kind of look at God's word. But before we do that, we have to recognize that, as we talked about last week, it takes being a disciple of Jesus Christ, being a disciple of anybody and anything means following and applying the disciplines that they have. If you're a disciple of a world-class chef, that chef is going to teach you certain disciplines that he has in the kitchen. We happen to be disciples of Jesus Christ, so there are certain disciplines spiritually that we practice to join Christ in who he is and what he's like. Listening is one of those. Studying his word is another one. But before we get into that, I have a a video that I want you to watch. You heard me mention Dallas Willard in a quote or two last week, and uh, you may again this week. But I wanted to introduce you to Dallas in this short clip as he speaks about disciplines. So hopefully you get a little clearer understanding of what I'm inviting you to in recognizing and looking at lessons of discipline. Again, one of the things that Dallas says and, and something elsewhere is discipline is should never be the conviction should never be working to produce a fruit of guilt in our life. It should be working to produce a vision for change of what can happen in our life. And how many times have we felt convicted and just feel guilty that, oh, well, you know, I'm not doing that. And that is never, it, conviction is, is, is not healthy for spiritual, or guilt is not healthy for spiritual formation. But the recognition of change, of a vision for change of who we can become and who Christ is wielding us to be before him and in this world, absolutely can be a motivation for what God has in store for us. See, the reality is, If one of the things that that, that Dallas said, disciplines take hold in the context of a vision for a good to be achieved. And then John Ortberg went on to talk about NFL players and the discipline that they would practice to win a Super Bowl. We should be the most disciplined people on the planet. Because the vision that we have before us is Christ himself in the flesh on the cross Loving us so much that he gave his life on our behalf. What better vision should propel people to live a life of discipline, to be shaped and to molded into the image of Christ? It, could the Super Bowl compare with the vision that Christians are be able to have before them of the love of God before us in Christ? And yet somehow we find ourselves to be some of the least disciplined people in our practice. And so I think in order to recognize the growth and who Christ is calling us to be as we move forward in in discipline, we have to recognize that the fuel behind this discipline is not a conviction that would produce guilt of something you're not doing. But the recognition of who Christ is and what he has done for us and the love that he has yet to reveal of who he is in greater ways and greater measure as he defines and redefines and shapes and molds us in his image. We should be leading the charge in the world for what disciplined people look like in a spiritual way because of the vision that we have before us. So my challenge to you this morning is, is as we look at and attempt for me to kind of pass along a very simple elementary way to begin reading your Bible. And let me start with this, is that recognizing kind of de- demystifying a piece here. Most of us, we study our Bible by picking up our Bible and reading it. Because we have been taught that you that's what you do when you read. You're reading for information. And so the more you read, the more information you're getting. And ideally, at some point, maybe you've gotten enough information out of the Bible that you can even start to quote the Bible because you've got the information down. And let me just throw this out there. The reality is I don't believe that God intends for you to read the Bible at all for the purpose of information. The Holy Spirit intends for us to read the Bible, to engage with him himself, to engage with God in the truths that he's given us in his word. It is not about information. It is about engaging and connecting and building a relationship with a person. So as we talked about last week in learning how to listen and recognizing that God is going to put Thoughts in our heads that are not just our thoughts that the the spirit of God alive within us having this thought and we learn to discern as we grow and mature and practice Discerning the difference in our thoughts and his thoughts because he's inviting us to live just as jesus did I simply do what I see the father doing and saying what I hear the father saying and and most of us are way off from Living that way, but there's so much opportunity before us as we learn to listen in this same reality the holy spirit wants to engage with us Grace coming alongside a discipline to study God's word, to empower us to see things and to know things about who Christ is in ways that we couldn't if we weren't looking to engage him in his word. So the Holy Spirit himself wants to speak to us and reveal truths of who Christ is and the knowledge of Christ in his word as we read it, if we are looking to engage in him and not just receive information. And so today we're going to look at the discipline side, one way of studying God's word beyond just picking up and reading it. Okay, and it's called inductive Bible study. So you're just going to have to bear with me, but we're going to go through a number of different slides and I'm going to teach you a process, a discipline of how to read your Bible so that you don't just pick it up and read it. But you have a plan how to engage with the spirit of God as he wants to engage with you and reveal truths to you in his word. So inductive Bible study, if you grab some notes on the way in, you know this is intended for you to be able to walk away and and have some opportunity to go do this yourself. But we start with O, I, and A. And the O stands for observation. So the first step of reading your Bible is that you take the text before you, and we're going to look at John 3.16 this morning. You take the text and you observe things in the text. The second step is interpretation. After you have observation, then you're going to move toward an interpretation of what this text is saying. And then last but not least is application. Observation, interpretation, and application. Okay? Now the rule of thumb here is observation. Observation, 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 interpretation, application. So when you're doing observation, you're beginning to learn to ask questions. Just like we talked about last week, it's really healthy And if you want to have a conversation with somebody, how do you engage that person in conversation? You ask them questions. This is what you're doing. You begin asking questions of the text and inviting the Holy Spirit to bring thoughts to mind that you wouldn't have necessarily seen otherwise. Real simple place to start. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. Who are you speaking to? Who is speaking? What's being said? What could be be being heard? When is this taking place? Where is it taking place? Why is this being said in this context and how do we go about following something like this? You with me? So, again, general rule of thumb and observation is, I mean, in this piece is is observation, 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 observation. Then get to interpretation for the place of advocation. So in observation, you get to be a detective A detective, you're Sherlock Holmes on the scene, and the scene is the text, the scripture that you're reading. So if you think of a detective, when he shows up on a crime scene, he is asking a ton of questions in his head and of everybody around that could have seen what happened. He is trying to recreate the scene, recreate the crime. He is imagining this by being the person who committed the crime. He's trying to ask questions about who was present, where were they standing, what took place, what time did that take place, how did this happen, what led to this crime? You with me? And all the different angles that the detective can imagine this, he can start to recreate the crime scene and start to understand things that are less than just visibly known by the guy who walks by and saw that a murder took place. The detective is trying to get down beneath the surface of all the things. And he does that by asking questions and by imagining what's taken what has taken place. So you get to be the detective with scripture and to dialogue and engage the spirit of God by asking these very same questions. Let's look at the next slide there. So the rule of thumb. You only begin to move to interpretation after careful and thorough observation, the rule of thumb, observation, 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 and then more observation so that you can get to interpretation. You can't observe enough. The more you can learn how to challenge and to observe in different angles of different ways, the more you're going to learn. All of us are aware of some level of where a church or where a person's theology has had interpretation of Scripture without careful observation. And whenever that happens, you could probably list a number of different ways that that's taken place or that you're aware of. It's not healthy because the reality is truth is true. It's not subject to change. It's true. And God's worth is true. And so when someone takes it out of context, per se, and tries to interpret a scripture apart from the context in which it was said within and the meaning behind this context, then things go awry. I have a problem with theology of prosperity gospel. I have a great problem with the prosperity gospel because they've taken statements of truth in the Bible and put them into a context to say that the Bible says something that it doesn't say that, you know, one one statement might be that God intends for every Christian to be rich and wealthy. Well, in some aspect, that's true. In the right context, in the context that God desires for every person to sow up for themselves riches in heaven. Absolutely. He desires for every one of us to work and to sow so that there are riches that we inherit in the eternal dwelling that he is inviting us into. But if God intended for every Christian to be physically wealthy, then why did Jesus have to ask Peter to go catch a fish and take the coin out of its mouth to pay their taxes? Why was he born in a stable? Why did he never seem to have two cents to his name and he was the son of God? It doesn't align itself with the truths of God as scripture should in order for proper interpretation to be made. Now, the reality is Jesus doesn't have a problem with money. There is nothing inherently wrong with money or finances or wealth. Jesus, as he speaks to finances and wealth, is always speaking to the motivation of the heart of the place that of priority that those finances and those wealth that wealth has in the person's heart. So for wealth to have a place in a person's heart higher than what Christ would have is not healthy. You with me? So it's all about it's not about the money. It is about the heart. You with me? So. I think you've probably got enough to understand what we're talking about there. So moving back to kind of our, our plan, you get to be a detective. And so here are some of the questions, you know, that you can look at and ask when you're when you're being a detective. Is the geographical location important for what's being said as you're reading through the text and find something? Ask these just simple questions to ask. Is there a cultural significance to what's being said? Understanding and learning about you know, first century Judaism and the the foundations of the Old Testament to understand or could you pick up on some of how would a Jewish person of this day, we're going to look at that in a minute, have heard this? Who is the specific audience that's being addressed? Is it a person? Is it a small group of people? Is it a large crowd that is being addressed here? Do the words being used allude back to other biblical statements? Notice the rhetoric that the author is using. Is he using, oftentimes in Paul's letters, you see him using comparison and contrasting things. He says, you know, if not this, then that. If not that, then this. If, you know, th- this is the way of the spiritual life, then this is the way in the flesh. And the flesh and the spirit are at war with one another. Paul loves to use contrast to make his point and to expel the truth of what he's trying to say. So, what type of rhetoric is being used by the author as you're observing what's being said? We're going to look this morning and be detectives just in one direction, one specific lens. There are a number of different glasses that you could put on to look at a text from. We're going to take one perspective and look at it from that perspective and see if there's something more that we get out of, out of Scripture than just by reading it or not engaging with it to ask questions about it. And that is, we're going to look at this, this I think it's the third one down, Who is the specific audience being addressed? Now, I've chosen a text that you're all familiar with, John 3.16. Everybody feel like John 3.16? You know, I probably could have quoted John. I grew up in the church. I probably could have quoted John 3.16 by the time I was eight or nine years old, right? For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, right? You all know John 3.16. Well, the reality is this is one of, and maybe I said this a minute ago, this is one of the realities of why we study We don't study for information because if you think you know what's being said, you won't study. If you think you know the Bible and you've read the Bible before, you'll check that box and you won't go study it. But you study to engage. So we're going to engage in John 3.16 and see if there's more to it than what we think we already know. So let's, let's look at this piece. We're going to look at the audience. In order to look at the audience, I'm going to begin reading to you the context So you're going to have to bear with me. You're having to practice some discipline to stay awake. You're going to have to bear with me as I read some passages to you this morning. I'm going to begin because we're going to look at the setting of John 3.16 and the audience that Jesus is speaking to in John 3.16. I'm going to begin reading in chapter 2, verse 23. Now, while Jesus, while he was in Jerusalem... At the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs that he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men, and he did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. Now, there was a man who was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miracles and signs you are doing if God did not, uh, if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, "I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again." How can a man be born when he is a, when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, "I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of the water and of the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, and the Spirit uh, gives birth to Spirit." You should not be surprised at my saying this. You must be born again. The, the wind blows wherever it pleases. It, um, you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asks. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know, and we testify of what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you on earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into the heaven except for the for the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses was lifted up, uh, lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall shall not perish but have eternal life for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he, is not, uh, because he did not believe in the name of God's one and only son this is the verdict light has come into the world but men love darkness instead of the light because their deeds are evil everyone who loves evil hates the light And will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he, whoever lives by the truth, comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. First question: Who is the audience that Jesus is speaking to? Nicodemus. Where are they? They're in Jerusalem. What time of day is it? It's at night. Imagine with me Nicodemus being a leader in the Jewish council, in order to have been in that place, his father and his grandfather and his great grandfather and his great 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 grandfather can be traced back to being connected to Abraham, a son of Abraham. so for generation after generation for Nicodemus to be considered On the head council of the Jewish people, there is a lineage of things being passed on to him. His reputation to be a steward of that lineage is huge. So here he comes to Jesus, this controversial teacher who's doing miraculous things. And he comes to him in respect, as we heard. We know that God sent you because you wouldn't be able to do these miraculous things if you weren't from God. And he comes to him to engage with Jesus But he comes to him also, most likely, to protect his name, to protect his reputation. He comes to him under the curtain of night. Important to maybe understand. Important to recognize that who Nicodemus is and who Jesus is speaking to and the things in which Jesus is speaking all right, moving on to the next piece. So we see this Nicodemus. We've seen that it came tonight. And we see that they're in Jerusalem. Now, we're going to look at the text itself, verse 16. For God so loved the world. For God so loved. Now, we have to recognize those three words, this is early on in Jesus' ministry. We're in John chapter 3. There are a lot more chapters in John. John chapter 3, there is something critically important that Jesus is saying and that Jesus is stating that Nicodemus hears right off the bat in this passage. For God so loved. Love and God being a God of love is everything to our theology and our understanding of how we live with him. We're going to look at uh, the IVP New Testament commentary. Just a quick statement that I want you to see here. It reads, since God is love, which is what we see written in 1 John 4.8. And love is the laying down of one's life, which we see in 1 John 3, 16. It is precisely in the cross that we see God most clearly. That God is love is the good news. This revelation is the gospel. That God is love is good news. And when we recognize what love is and we recognize that God is love. Then we recognize love. A lot about ourselves and who God is calling us to be. One of the first things I want you to know and see about love is that love always looks for what is good. It does not seek what is best for self, but is always considering others. God, our father in heaven, looks down and out of love, he is looking for what is best for us. He's looking. It always considers others. You with me? Love is not selfish, as we see in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is always considering how this is going to affect others. Now, we all have desires, right? Let me back up. I'm getting ahead of myself. It is the great human catastrophe, Dallas Willard says, that humans do not always desire what is good, as God does. Third statement, desire of the human or of our flesh is singularly focused, and desires that are subordinate to love can be healthy, but desires that exist outside this means are destructive. We all have desires. The reality is desires are unhealthy when they're not subordinate to love. But if love is always considering others, then desires can be healthy if they're submissive to it. So it is healthy for a husband to love his wife and to have desire for her as he is considering How this affects her. But for a husband to want to have his way and not be considerate of his wife is unhealthy. You with me? Desire itself is not unhealthy. Desire that does not want to submit under love that considers how this affects others is what is unhealthy. God created man and women with desires. But he invites those desires to be submissive under himself and under love. God himself is living this way and he is inviting us to learn how to and join him in living in that same manner. For everything that we're about, to be submissive under love. So here's one of the realities, and as a pastor I can tell you this to be true. In almost 15 years of being in full-time ministry, one of the things that I see over and over and over again is where people come to seek spiritual guidance is because is, is oftentimes a hiccup or an issue or stress that they have in life. Most of the time, or a lot of the time, clearly, it's an area where they have not been able to trust God. They don't believe, to the point of action, that God can be trusted. They feel like they have to be able to be in control of of the situation in order for this thing to work out the way they see it to happen. But if we can practice recognizing that God is a God of love and we recognize the truth that he says in scripture, that I'll work all things out to the good of those who love me and are called according to my purpose, that we recognize that he has plans for us, plans for our future, for us to be prosperous, for these things to work out good, that throughout the Old and the New Testament, we see these uh, these, these these passages that align themselves with saying who God is and that The way he lives is to love us, and that is good for us. But this need for control that can't trust God to be loving or doesn't trust that God really does have considered what's best for us in this. And so when that is the case, then things the priority gets out of place and we're not living our lives in submission to recognizing God as a God of love And so we've taken control. And when we take control and we don't trust, then worry is at hand. Anxiousness is at hand. But God's spirit is a spirit of peace. As it falls under, we get to experience the peace of of Christ with us. Are you with me? You following? That understanding God is a God of love is huge to a theology of how we are to live. Because this is who he is. And Jesus is stating this right off the bat as a critical point. The next thing we see that... Jesus is saying, you know, for the Father so loved the world, for God so loved the world, right? Now, I grew up in the church, as you heard me say a few minutes ago. I grew up learning this, or at least the way I interpreted it, was that for God so loved you, Scott, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes, if you believe in him, you will not perish, but have eternal life. Now, Maybe you're not like me. Maybe you read through the details of the text better than I did growing up. But I had this understanding of this passage to be, for God so loved you that he gave his only son. If you believe in him, then you can have eternal life. Well, that's great. That's true. God does love me, and I do get to have eternal life as I believe in him. But the reality is, if I read it from the context of, for God so loved you, Scott, then the application will be tremendously short of what is actually said. If I read it in the context, for God so loved you, Scott, then once I have believed in Jesus Christ, then I have this assurance that I'll have eternal life with him. That I won't perish, but have eternal life. But that's not what the text says. So the text says, for God so loved the world, of which I'm a part of. So yes, it includes me, But it's not just about me. For God so loved the world, God loved who? Everybody. So now there is more to be had. There's more work to be done because not everyone has yet come to believe and therefore have eternal life. So God is at work redeeming the world that he created that is lost and broken and fractured from him. And as I come into his world, as I recognize myself and belief in him, now I get to join with him in helping redeem the world that he loves. Radically different perspective just on one word in this passage. That really changed my life, recognizing that, yes, Jesus died on the cross for me and I believe in him. But there's no box to check that that's done and that there's no responsibility that I have to move beyond this point. That at the point of my decision to believe in Christ and to accept him, my spiritual life is not over. My spiritual life just was birthed. And just like it, it would be a tragedy for the birth of a baby to end after a day. It's a greater tragedy in the spiritual realm for the life of a Christian to end after their decision to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That is just the birthing point in which Jesus then wants to grow a spiritual person into the image of who he is, the son of God that lives to love this world that the father loves and his heart is broken for. And he has done everything to redeem those who have not yet believed and The opportunity they can have to have eternal life. But it takes growth from a child from the moment it was born to adulthood to mature, just as it takes growth for you and I to recognize that God has more work to do in us. And we need to get off our, get out of our high chair and on to the reality that we need to grow and have his heart be the heart that flows in us and through us. And he does that by leading us and by coming alongside in grace and giving us a spirit to continually teach and guide and help, help us recognize who Christ is and who we're called to be. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now, back to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is, as we stated, a leader in the Jewish council. In order for Nicodemus to have been in such a position, by the time he was 12, he would have had to recite the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the first five, Bibles of the, first, first, first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I don't know about you, but I'm intimidated by that. Nicodemus knew his Bible. Nicodemus knew that when Jesus said, one and only son, a light bulb went off in his head. So let me just kind of show you a little piece. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't. This is for those who haven't seen it yet. This little "n" that I put up here in this slide next to son is a cross reference. Okay, and you'll see those. Go to the next slide. You'll see those all in kind of oftentimes the middle column in your Bible. Go to the next one. You see, you know, you can see all these little letters that are throughout a text, and you can go to the next one. Then you can look at that and say, okay, this N now refers me to a specific passage, and that's what we're going to look at. The N in my Bible leads me to Genesis chapter 22, which I'm telling you, as soon as Jesus said, one and only son, Nicodemus' mind went to Genesis chapter 22. Because he's memorized the Pentateuch by the time he was 12. He can quote for you, word by word, Genesis chapter 22. So let's look at Genesis chapter 22. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me. If not, I'm going to read to you specifically, verse, verse 12, but I'm going to begin reading up to that. Most of you know this story. It's a famous passage in the Old Testament. I'm going to begin reading in the first verse, Genesis chapter 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. Only one of the, on one of the mountains I will tell you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of the servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. And he said to the servants, "Stay here with the donkey while while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and we will come back to you." Abraham took the wood uh, for the for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went together, Isaac spoke to to his father, Abraham. Father? Yes, son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place that God had told him about, Abraham built an altar As we look at this text, Genesis chapter 22, there are a few things that I want to point out. I want you to recognize some some key words that you and I should be picking up on that are being stated in this telling of Abraham willing to sacrifice his son Isaac. One of the things that we need to recognize is that lost my notes is that one of the key things that stood out to me in verse four on the third day, they got to where they were going. Verse five, then we will come back to you now. Pause again. Nicodemus knows this. He's memorized it. Abraham is saying to the two servants, after we've gone and worship, we're going to come back to you. As it seems strange to you, it did to me that he's going to go slay his son, sacrifice him. He's going to be dead. But he says to his servants, we will return. How is that the case? I'm convinced that Abraham knew and believed God that this is Isaac, and you've already given me a promise that through him I'm going to have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands of the earth. And that if the Lord is inviting me to sacrifice him, then the Lord is going to raise him from the dead because we are going to return. Any alluding to the reality of what could be being spoken to back in Genesis that Nicodemus could be hearing in the context of John 316? Moving on to verse six, Abraham took wood and placed it on his son Isaac's back. Verse 8, God Himself will provide a lamb. Verse 9, He bound His Son and laid Him on the wood to go be sacrificed. Now just pause with me and just look at these backwards. He bound His Son, laid Him on the wood. God Himself will provide the lamb. Abraham took wood and placed it on his son's back. Then we will, then we will come back to you. And they've just been traveling for three days. Should there be things that we as Christians, knowing the full story, should be recognizing about the story that was written in Genesis chapter 22? Whether or not we recognize, whether or not Nicodemus could fully recognize the things that we can see now, Nicodemus absolutely In his mind, when he heard one and only son, went back to Genesis chapter 22. And in that context, should be able to recognize that Jesus is saying that he gave his son, his one and only son. That Jesus is saying to him, I'm going to be sacrificed. I am the Passover lamb. And Nicodemus above anybody else as one of the leaders of the Jewish council should be able to hear this and recognize what Jesus is saying in chapter three of John long before it actually happens. This is the early time, early beginning place of John's ministry. Interesting. Getting something a little bit more out of John three sixteen than maybe you've seen before only because we're engaging with the text and asking the Holy Spirit and following even these Simple disciplines that have already been put for you in your Bible to kind of help lead to clues of. And then engaging with him in those texts. And next thing you know, you're excited as you're discovering the relevatory truth that the Holy Spirit is showing you about who God is and how this has been planned all along. And let me just confirm it to you again as I show you and lead you to greater and greater understanding of who I am and how I have everything planned out. Moving forward. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes again, Nicodemus is now in the context of in the middle of the statement, his his mind running to Genesis chapter 22, because there's no way he would have missed that. And knowing in that context, the very next word that says the very next two words are said is whoever believes Nicodemus should be able to stop and pick up on. Abraham is the father of belief. Abraham is the father of faith. Abraham is our father and he was credited to him as righteousness for how he believed that God would. Even bring his son back with me. So if it's there's no there's no leap for Nicodemus to make a leap from one and only son to belief, because that's exactly what Nicodemus would have already been thinking. But that word, whoever being put in there changes everything. Because. Up to this moment, up before Jesus making this statement, Nicodemus knew that one and only son and father of belief meant for the Jewish nation, for all those in lineage, to Abraham. But this prophesied throughout the Old Testament that God is going to be a God of all the nations of the earth. That at some point that the Gentiles, you and I, those who have been born apart from bloodline to Abraham himself would be able to receive and have God be our God. It would no longer be exclusive to the Jewish people. And so when Jesus says, whoever believes, the bells and the whistles are going off in Nicodemus' head. Oh, wait a minute. This is what was prophesied about the Messiah when he comes unto all the nations. This is the Messiah. And all who believe in him will inherit eternal life. Well, and eternal life was reserved for those who were sons of Abraham. Now it's being stated that eternal life will be given to whomever believes in the Son of God. If you hear this, if you can imagine reading this from Nicodemus' perspective, if this is a 9.0 on the Richter scale of his theology. But it's the fulfillment of all that's being spoken to in the Old Testament of what to expect and what to see. And it's just being captured in this one verse. Now. This is one angle. One perspective that we can look at a text in scripture and just begin asking questions and have a understanding of what might be being said beyond what we've always known by just diving into reading the Bible. Passing over that verse, being able to quote it. Why stop and consider the words being said, or why even stop and ask it questions? Because I understand it. And that's where we fool ourselves and that's where we miss the awesome things that God has in store for us. So, if you think you've gotten anything out of just looking at a passage that you know, then I've got some homework for you. Homework. I'm going to give you a passage in Scripture that you get to go look at, and we're going to look at here in just a second. That you get to go look at and engage with God in and ask questions about this, okay? And the passage is, comes from Luke chapter 16, Luke chapter 16, verse 9. Jesus is speaking. I should have made the letters red here. Jesus is speaking. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Does that sound like something Jesus would say? That's what Jesus said. So there must be something more that Jesus is saying around what Jesus is saying in order for that to be understood to be something that would align itself with who Jesus is. So I'm putting before you the challenge to go practice a discipline. This specific technique is called inductive Bible study. This is an extremely elementary version of a teaching, but to come alongside you and to help give you an opportunity to engage the spirit of God in the word of God, to discover the truths that he has in in store for you. We're taking a Sunday, we're doing things different and you're getting a lesson rather than a sermon, but you've probably gotten a sermon in the midst of the lesson. Because one of the realities that you have to recognize in the context of Nicodemus here in this passage. Everything about who Nicodemus was and what Nicodemus believed and the foundation of Nicodemus's life was challenged in the statement that Jesus made in John 3, 16. And what Nicodemus goes on to say next when he starts to talk about the light and the dark and that I've came, I've come into darkness to be a light. As I was reading through this, this is this is a side note. You get this for extra credit, right? I began to recognize, okay, if if I were to take you into the basement underneath one of the most happening bars in downtown Atlanta, but you had to have a special pass to be able to get down there, and there's some really lively, colorful stuff happening upstairs, it's dark downstairs. You imagine going downstairs and seeing how dark this place may be or what just might be taking place. Now imagine being kidnapped by some really bad people and... They take you in a van and you find yourself in this basement. There are really bad people in this basement. Would you be glad when the police showed up and the flashlight started shining around the room? And would the people who kidnapped you be glad when the flashlight started shining around the room? That's a modern day interpretation of a little bit of the principle that Jesus is speaking to, that he's speaking to Nicodemus when he say, "But those who don't want their stuff exposed, Nicodemus, don't want to come into the light." And it's an invitation to Nicodemus, and an invitation for you and me to know and to recognize that God is a God of truth, and He is going to come with lights ablaze. And it's going to challenge our hearts. So I don't apologize for challenging or inviting you to spiritual disciplines because of the vision of the opportunity that God is inviting you to practice those disciplines, to join his spirit, a spirit of grace that will empower you to do what you cannot do on your own as you're doing your part and I'm doing my part. And we do what we can't apart from practice and apart from diving into who he is. I'm going to close with this. I'm convinced God has big things that he wants to do in your life. And he wants to do in my life. And he wants to do in the life of vintage. But that God is a God who is redeeming the world and wants to include us in it. And wants to change our hearts in the process from being hearts that are fixed on our own desires. And instead have our hearts that are submissive to love and that are fixed on his desires. That consider how to love other people. And you don't want to miss out on the opportunities that God has in store for you to see the kingdom of God come on earth as it is in heaven and to see lives transformed before your very eyes because they got a glimpse of the vision of who Christ is because you were simply doing what you saw the Father doing and saying what you hear the Father say. So my challenge is for you to engage with him in his word and to listen. And to further grow that relationship as he has for you to mature as a Christian. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the plans that you have. Thank you that you, this is not just for us. Thank you that you are at work and you are redeeming. And you will not stop. Thank you, Lord, that you love us. And because you love us, you include us in the work that you do. Thank you for not passing us by. But, Lord, we, let, we recognize right now just by the passage that we see and imagining it from Nicodemus' perspective, it does mean that you may challenge the very core of who we are. And thank you for loving us so much that you do just that. So, Father, I just pray that your spirit move in this place on our hearts and give us a vision of the transformation that you know all about of who we can be as we live our life with, with our ultimate priority to engage you and who you are. We're going to take this this moment.